Would you please stand with me as we read? Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the walls were joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they were repairing, that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being, beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And in Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the, of the, so in the, lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been making our way through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, which, if you remember, for most of the history of the church was one book. It's only later that it actually gets divided out as two books. It's intended to be one story. It's the story of Israel after being in exile for 70 years, being kicked out of the land for their sin, 
they return to the land and begin to occupy it again to rebuild the temple, which is what Ezra is about, and to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall, which is what Nehemiah is about. But have you ever stopped to, to place yourself in the shoes of someone coming back from exile? You can actually imagine you've, you've been living in a ghetto for 70 years. Your parents have died in the ghetto. You don't really know what it is to live in Jerusalem. And you've come back, and it's in shambles. And God brings you back, and he says, welcome back. Now you have an unbelievably hard ordeal ahead of you. Get to work. Isn't there a part of you that would think, you know, exile seems like a pretty significant punishment. Is it really necessary now that you demand so much of us? Could You know, you've sent with Nehemiah permission to do this. You've sent supplies with Nehemiah to do this. Couldn't you have sent a hundred slaves from the king who would rebuild the wall for us? Haven't we been through enough? Why do you keep demanding so much of us? This question, in its general sense, is taken up um, in a novel by George MacDonald, who is an author that I've developed a deep appreciation for over the last couple of years. MacDonald was a minister and wrote uh, a lot of things, uh, living in the 19th century. And in one of his books, just a novel called The Vicar's Daughter, there's a discussion where a grandmother sits with a group that's gathered, and she takes up with her children a certain question about why the world is the way it is, because they're struggling with this. And in essence, the question begins, God makes the world good and beautiful, but it's not good and beautiful for everyone. Really, it's an ugly and awful place for many. And so why didn't God make it better for everyone? If you've never thought about it, that's a really good question. And so the granny takes it up this way. She says, God made the world good and beautiful, but I wonder why he didn't make it good and beautiful for everyone. Why does it seem unfinished? And so the group gathered begins to take up the question, and eventually the grandmother has to come back in, and she suggests maybe that this world is not God's endgame. Maybe this world is really something like a scaffolding that goes alongside the palace that God is building. And you are called, or we are called, to be workers on that scaffolding, co-laboring with the building of this palace. And that's really what's going on in the world, that something greater, it's tangential, Something greater is going on of which this world is, uh, plays a part. Granny says this, Suppose God were building a palace for you and had set up a scaffold upon which he wanted you to help him. Would it be reasonable for you to complain that you didn't find the scaffold at all a comfortable place to live in? Right? Do you get Granny's question? What God is doing is put you on a scaffold. He's building a great and grand palace for you to live in. And she asks the grandchildren, is it reasonable then for you to get really frustrated about the scaffold given the project at large? They debate this, and and some are inclined to say, well, yeah, it doesn't seem like a great idea. And the granny goes on to say, you know, really the, the real problem perhaps is that on the scaffold we become so concerned with making our place on the scaffold comfortable that we forget that we're laboring on the palace. And we leave the work to labor on the palace to the side, and we start to grab scraps of clothing or carpets or wood, and we start to erect some small hut on the scaffolding in which we might be comfortable. And Granny says this, I mean that God wants to build you a house whereof the walls shall be goodness, 
you want a house whereof the walls shall be comfort. How often do we get distracted by desiring that God would provide us something that we deem comfortable? Whereas God, if He truly loves us and is truly good and is committed to our welfare, then He must be committed to something far greater than our comfort, which is our goodness. And this is one of the ways that we have to approach Nehemiah 4 in order to understand it. Nehemiah 4 in the book of Nehemiah at large is not necessarily an easy thing to interpret. And it's not necessarily easy for this reason. It's very disconnected from where we sit and live. Right? This is an ancient story. They're rebuilding a stone wall. We're not involved in building a stone wall. Right? We're not, we don't identify as God's people by a particular city. So how do we bridge the horizons between Nehemiah 4 and where we live today? What does Nehemiah have to say to us living in the 21st century as those who worship and follow Jesus Christ? Now here's where ancient interpreters can actually help us. And in some ways they were more savvy than we are today. We might think that we're very enlightened in our interpretation, but they had in some ways a greater respect for the book, for the Bible as a whole. What do I mean by that? Ancient interpreters believed that there were at least four senses to any given text. The text could not be understood simply through one lens. The four lenses that they used, number one was the literal or historical. It's what's actually happening, the deeds in in the story itself. But you couldn't necessarily stop there. The second sense that they employed was the allegorical, that the story may be about something bigger than what it actually says, that it may allude to something spiritual or point forward to something that's greater than what's happening in the story itself. The third sense is the moral, which is what should you do in light of this passage. And the fourth sense is called the anagogical, which may be a word that's foreign to you, but it means how does this passage teach me to look forward? What is my trajectory? What am I hoping for? And all four senses are important. And it isn't necessarily that every time you come to a passage of Scripture, you can wring out all four senses from that passage. But what the ancients understood was you couldn't limit yourself to the historical or literal sense of the text, which, interestingly, as we go through the Enlightenment, in the West, it's largely what we do. Because science comes to the place where it reigns supreme, and everyone starts arguing over, well, how do we know an interpretation is true? Well, the only way then to know the interpretation is true is to rely almost exclusively on the historical or literal sense because we can establish it by things like archaeology or by records found in other cultures. But in doing that, to some extent, we've done ourselves a great disservice. Even the New Testament writers, as we'll see as we proceed, lead us in thinking of the text in more ways than simply the historical or literal. And so these four senses... This approach, now I I debated keeping this in. And the reason that I'm going through this is not simply to justify how we're going to read Nehemiah 4 this morning, although that's happening, right? But some of you recognize that you already do this as you read your Bibles. This is an important exercise, right? And for those of you who don't do it, you're missing out on a much deeper reading of the text, If you come to a book, Nehemiah or anything, and you say, oh, I get the story, I understand what happened historically, without necessarily asking the allegorical question, does this have something higher to communicate to me? 
or the typological question is point forward to something, or the moral question, what should I do as a result, or the anagogical question, what am I hoping for, what am I looking toward as a result of this text, then your reading is very shallow. And you need to start employing those questions in those different senses to the text as you do your own reading. In fact, I hope as a result of today that you'll spend more time in Nehemiah and more time not simply understanding the story, but asking those questions of the text that you can really be immersed in it. So let's give it a try. Let's go to Nehemiah 4 and employ some of these senses as we engage the text. So the literal historical, right? We're already pretty much, most of us all right, are on the same page. Exile happened. The Jews were kicked out of the land for their sin. They've been brought back. Ezra is about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall or essentially uh, rebuilding Jerusalem and the people coming back and reestablishing the relationship with God at that place. Immediately, they face opposition. People have been living in the place the whole time, not always Jews, and so immediately you have characters like Sanballat and Tobiah who are mocking and standing against this progress. You think, why do they care if the Jews rebuild Jerusalem? This little backcountry, small nation of little significance, who cares? Well, they uh, exist in a certain power structure. They've figured out ways, as we'll see as we go forward in the story, to make money in the current situation. And as the Jews come back and rebuild the wall, they reestablish themselves, they change the power structure, and they're going to directly influence how Tobiah and Sanballat make money. And so that's what they're upset about. They want to keep the Jews subjugated. They don't want them having a stronger position, and so they stand against them. This is the historical situation. And so in 2 and 3, you look there, Sanballat uh, mocks, mocks what's going on. Says this task is too big. You're never going to do it. You can't build it out of these rocks. Tobiah similarly mocks the project. In verse 6, though, the stone wall has already reached half its height because it says the people had a mind to work. All well and good. Things are going forward. But this progress makes the opponents even more angry. And what began as mockery becomes violent rage. And they plot to do harm to the workers on the wall. Well, Nehemiah comes and encourages the people. They pray, they set a guard, and work continues. But by verse 10, the people are worn out. This is too much. There's too much rubble. The stones aren't worth using. We're overwhelmed. And they send again for Nehemiah. And their efforts are renewed. And they set up new protections. And Nehemiah reminds them in verse 14, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And so for the rest of the chapter, you have ongoing defense. You have Nehemiah establishing trumpeters so that if there's an attack, a trumpeter will sound the trumpet and people are to rally to that point. Nehemiah says, God will fight for you. And he stations people and hides them throughout the wall to defend it. And invites all the men to sleep inside the walls of Jerusalem so that if they're attacked at night, they'll be prepared. And on and on it goes. The wall continues to rise higher and higher. Well, all well and good. So why is the story here? What are you going to do with it at this point? We've only done the literal historical reading. And so you might say, well, I have some advice on how to handle opponents. Right? I can buy a bow or a sword, or like Nehemiah, you can curse everyone who stands against you. 
And this is what you might draw a text, right? If you go online, you, very quickly, you'll find eight lessons of leadership from Nehemiah or how to engage your church's building campaign, right? All of these are readings of the literal and historical nature of the text. But this is just the problem. To stay in that place is so limiting, and it, do, it doesn't make sense. You can't simply say, let's do what they did, because you don't live in the same context. You, don't, you aren't in the same historical situation. So we must read deeper to understand why the story is here. And as we do so, as we enter kind of an allegorical sense, we understand that, uh, that Scripture invites us to do this very much so. In other words, Ezra is about the rebuilding of a temple. Well, as you go into the New Testament, a temple as a building doesn't matter anymore. The temple as a building will be destroyed. And as you enter the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is beginning to push against the religious leaders. And the religious leaders say, okay, who are you? Give us a sign. Jesus says, okay, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And the religious leaders scoff. It took 40 years to build this temple. What are you talking about? And Jesus, well, John tells us that what Jesus is talking about is his body. The temple is no longer a building. The temple now is the Son of God. The temple was always the place where God in heaven met, where they come together, where God's presence resides on earth. And as Christ comes, the incarnation happens, God's presence exists in the Son of God. But as Christ is, dies and is resurrected and dispenses the Spirit, Where does God's presence go? In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You understand what was a building and what was occupied, that space by Jesus himself, is now you. You are the dwelling place of God on this earth. You are the place where heaven and earth meet because God in his goodness and kindness has decided that you are the place where his spirit will take up residence. And it's not only the temple. First Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, you weren't a people. You are a people. You're a holy nation. You're a city. You are now God's city. You are now God's people. And so as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, a book about rebuilding a temple and about rebuilding a city and move forward, we understand now after the death and resurrection of Jesus that you are that temple in that city. And if we are to glean anything about being built up It is now to understand how we are built up in Christ. We are those stones that are now chosen and made part of God's building project. You are God's building project. So, how does that help us to read the passage? If we go back to Nehemiah 4, now we read it in light of not a building and not a physical wall, but in light of what God is continuing to do, what He's continuing to build In us, what do we learn? Well, first, I would say expect conflict. Even as the wall is going up, in the early part, Sanballat will come and mock the people who are working on the wall. And he says, 
Listen, the task is too great. The stones are too burned. There's too much rubble. Do you actually think anything will happen here? And Tobiah comes and he says, you know, that wall may look impressive from some perspective, but you know what? If a fox walks up on that wall, it's going to fall down. That's how strong your wall is. And you know those voices, do you not? Those voices that come from outside, voices that may say, yes, well, religion is a crutch for those who need it. But we, sophisticated people of the 21st century, who need such things? Or even from your own heart. I believed in Jesus, but he isn't showing up. All of my strength that I demonstrate to everyone around me is an illusion. It is an image. And I do not really have confidence that there is any strength here. And yes, Tobiah is right. If a fox were to walk on my wall, it would fall down. From outside and from within, we know those mocking and jeering voices because there will be conflict. The prince of the power of the air and your old self are absolutely against you being remade, you being built into something new. And so you had better expect that conflict to occur. Number two, first we're expecting conflict. Secondly, recognize that the task is overwhelming. Look at verse 10 with me. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You know what? Truer words were never spoken. The task is too great. The stones are too burned. There's too much rubble. They don't have the strength of their own accord to actually rebuild this wall. And you know that true is true of yourself and your, God's building project in you. So if the task is authentically too great, then what are we supposed to do? How do we actually move forward and participate? Well, lesson number three is that you have an advocate. And here you need to recognize that Nehemiah is very much a type of Christ. Nehemiah comes from the king's court. He comes with the king's authority. And as those who stand against the building project say, you can't do that, you don't have permission It's not going to work. Nehemiah stands and says, no, I come from and with the king's authority. We absolutely can do this. You have no permission to stand in our way, and it will move forward. And he offers leadership and encouragement. He assigns the people their roles. He makes sure that the resources are there from the king's court to actually accomplish the project. And there's one more very significant way that Nehemiah is a type of Christ, and it may be the most important way, and that is this. He tells the people to get to work. If you think about it for a minute, Nehemiah makes these bold requests of the king before returning to Jerusalem. And he asks for the time and he asks for the resources that this, might, this project might go forward. But why didn't he ask simply for a hundred slaves to come with him? Why didn't he ask for laborers to engage the project, surely within the king's dominion to command? Because Nehemiah knew that it was essential that the people participate. That if it was done for them, then they would be made comfortable, but they would not be made good. Life would be made easy, but they would not be made new. It would have been horrific for the people. And we see in this, as we look to Nehemiah as a type of Christ, 
And he leads the people, notice, the outstanding balance all throughout chapter 4 of faith and obedience. For one does not function without the other. And to rely on one at the expense of the other is great danger to you being remade. Look at verse 9. The people prayed faith and set a guard, obedience. In verse 14, Nehemiah challenged the people to remember the Lord, faith, while they stationed, they were stationed with swords and bows, obedience. In verse 20, just beyond our reading, you can look there if you have your Bible, Nehemiah tells the people to rally to the sound of the trumpet, which will indicate an attack, obedience, and to remember that as they rally there, the Lord will fight for them, faith. Faith and obedience are so intimately tied together that they cannot be separated one from another. And yet you have a tendency to gravitate to one or the other, which is terribly dangerous. It doesn't help you, and it doesn't facilitate God's work in your heart. So what do I mean by that? Some of you are inclined to think and talk about faith. And it's not real faith, but it's the kind of faith where there's a lot of God talk and you're really grateful to Jesus. But if you were living in Nehemiah's day, right, and if we looked at your actions, not what you say or talk about, but your actions, you would kind of be like the Jew who pulled up a camp chair and threw on a a hat with the two beer slots and the straws coming down and says, Nehemiah, you are a champion. You are doing great work. You can do this. And I'm going to jump in there in just a little while. But I'm so confident in your leadership, we're good. But there's no obedience. And so faith is to some extent mocked. And for those of you to gravitate to this place, eventually what happens is you'll very often find yourself prone to pursue escapism. Why? Because there's no real change over time. And so you live in this terrible dissonance, this, this terrible cacophony between the confession of your mouth, which is Jesus is strong and he brings change and he brings peace, and you experience none of it. And so you want to escape. You run to something that helps you to forget about that burden, that tension. And on the other side, there are those of you who love to live in obedience but not in faith. And you, you're, the, you're the people who say, I've got this all the time. Yes, of course, Jesus is important. Thank goodness he died on the cross. And now I am freed up to do all the rest of the work of the kingdom. Right? If you lived in Nehemiah's day, you're in front of everybody. Right? You're throwing stones like they're pieces of candy. Right? When everybody says nobody can move that stone, you think to yourself, oh, I can. And so you live in that obedience. But the problem with your obedience is it's not really grounded in faith. You don't really believe that God will love you for who you are. You think he'll only really love you and draw near to you if you reach a certain level of performance. You think that of others too, which is why you're so committed to this image of obedience. And what's going to happen to you? Well, typically, not always, but very often, you become really bitter. You become very angry. You become very judgmental. Why? Because you think you deserve what you, you think you deserve a lot more than you're receiving. You think you deserve to feel the love and the peace and the grace of Christ because of what you've done. When in reality, if Christ was to give that to you, it would be the worst thing ever 
because he would be giving it to you for the wrong reason. And so you, your heart grows cold. And over time, you do less and less work. You burn out. Because you don't know him who actually loves you and actually wants, it has the power to make you new. This is the power of when faith and obedience come together because it is the reality that the project is horrifically overwhelming and possibly beyond our task. The stones that Sanballat mocks in the beginning, right? he says, you can't do anything with these stones. They're too burned. They're rubble. They're broken to pieces. You can't rebuild a wall out of this. And God mocks their wisdom. And says, yes, I can. And when you in your heart, when you gravitate towards faith alone and don't have the obedience where you're not willing to labor on the project, you are consumed with your comfort rather than your goodness, the goodness God desires for you. Or your obedience, you say, I will do it. I'll manufacture my goodness, which I think is my comfort. In both directions, you become alienated from God. But in Christ, he looks on you and says, yes, you are a burned over piece of rubble. That is the condition of your heart. And that's okay. Because God can take that and he can build it into something wholly new. Something that's beautiful and something that's good. It's a palace that we begin to dwell in now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for loving us so much. Thank you for making us good and not just comfortable. Please forgive us in the ways in which we love ourselves, in the ways in which we we seek comfort rather than goodness, for the ways in which we pull away from the project that you have called us to and instead invest in our own projects. Would you make us new? Holy Spirit, come. Make our hearts flesh. Help us to remember that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And in that atonement, you build something that is spectacular. The most wonderful building ever created out of the ugliest stones ever found. In this we rejoice this morning. We give you thanks. And we ask humbly that you would continue to receive our praise. Amen.